Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. So for the next two episodes of Icons of DC Area Real Estate, I'm going to be interviewing Ben Miller, the founder and CEO of Fundrise. Fundrise is the first online real estate investment platform that he founded in 2012. After each of the next two episodes, I also am going to be introducing Tom Amos, Tom, who will be participating with me going forward on all of my interviews to do a postscript of the discussions. We will talk about what he learned and questions that he has of me as in to interpret some of the ideas that we talked about in, the, in this conversation. And I hope that you will enjoy that aspect of our conversations going forward. So in part one with Ben, we'll be talking about his background he grew up in Washington, D.C. His father was Herb Miller, which, who was one of the landmark developers over the last 30 years, 40 years in, in Washington, D.C., with many significant major projects. And he's a visionary in, in real estate development in office and retail and spreading nationally with these Mills Corporation. So Ben learned quite a bit from his father and was influenced heavily, and he talks about that. And then he talks a little bit about his schooling at Penn and then working for Lupert Adler in Philadelphia, which is a, gave him strong analytical skills as well as looking at deals. And then he went to work for his father after school and learned that his dad liked to do large deals. He decided he wanted to focus on smaller transactions, broke away from his father, put a deal together, decided he was interested in helping young people invest in real estate as well. So instead of becoming a developer himself, he decided to raise capital at a small scale, working with an attorney friend of his to try to bring the capital markets to smaller size investors, which involved into his company Fundrise, which we talk about how he started and, and how, what he went through to get it built. Fascinating discussion that we proceed up until we get into how he's been able to be resilient in a book called Anti-Fragile by Taleb. And that's where we cut off part one of our discussion. So without further ado, here is Ben Miller. So Ben, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I look forward to talking about uh, you and your career and uh, your efforts at Fundrise. So could you describe your role at Fundrise and your focus day-to-day? Yeah, so I'm a, a lead in a long-term strategy product development roadmap. Basically means what we're going to build and why and how that translates into sort of the, the real estate investment strategies. And then I also oversee a lot of the real estate investment and asset management, accounting, finance, 
and uh, the sort of senior leadership team. In my intro, I described Fundrise to some de- de- detail, but we'll, uh, we'll get into, the, obviously, more of the details later on. So you're the, basically the chief thinker at, at the company, in essence, uh, as far as strategy and orientation, I assume. Yeah. Basically, this is a little bit a philosophy point right now, but in any business, there are people who push and there's people who pull. Mm-hmm. And you need both. And sometimes you switch seats. So I, I'm usually somebody pushing, making people feel a little bit uncomfortable, taking us to the edge of, of where we should be. And then there's people in the company normally are pulling, or trying to keep us grounded, trying to keep us making sure everything works from a software point of view. And the larger the company gets, the more you need somebody or people who, are, who, who drag people out of their comfort zone. Right. And you know, it's obviously a mix. I, I learned that from my father. So I, yes. I, I can switch back and forth. Not everybody can do that. Yes. Your father is one of the most incredible visionaries I've ever met. So that's great to emulate him <laughs> for that. So let's shift to uh, your, we're in an obviously in a very interesting time in the marketplace now for every human being on the planet. There are implications in every business, but in particular, from my lens, uh, the real estate business has significant impacts in every facet of it, I believe, from the space use, uh, financial, etc. So I'd like to get your perspective on today, comparing it to some of the previous crises that we've been through in, in the commercial real estate sector, how you see it playing out and how this might affect your business a little bit. And uh, where do you think we'll be, say, five years from now for, as a result of this? Yeah, I mean, it's a human tragedy. It's going to have the biggest effect on real estate in you know, maybe a century. So how do you think it compares to 2001 and and the, and the global financial crisis of uh, 07, 08, 09? Or does it compare in your mind? It's more like 2008 and that, because that was a, a debt crisis. And this will be a debt crisis as well. But it's, it's much more serious. And right where we sit today, stock markets at all-time highs again. Uh, and there's a feeling like we're through the worst of it. And I think that's dead wrong. And that by the winter, we'll be in a very dark place financially for the country. I don't think that we'll have a vaccine for at least a year where at least I'll get it in my arm and my, my team will get it. So it's, so I think the demand shock, which if you go read, there's really good books about the depression. There's one yes. called uh, since yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's all about what happened. And, and it's so, the parallels are uncanny, but it's a, it's a demand shock. Yes. And demand shock means that, there's a lot less demand for something mm-hmm. in this case, because people can't leave their homes yep. and demand shocks cause deflation. Yep. And deflation is probably the hardest thing to battle economically. Well, we could get into global macro issues vis-a-vis the, the federal government's backstopping what you just said, but I, I think I'd like to kind of defray on that, that discussion a little bit. It'll be interesting to see how we, uh, how the government does address it, because in this moment, even though I am somewhat of a libertarian, I think now the government needs to step in and help us at least through this time for for 
until we have some semblance of normal normalcy, mm-hmm. but it may take 12 to 18 months or longer to get there. So anyway, thanks for that perspective. So Ben, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Assuming you grew up in DC because I've met your father and know his background and career from way back. So tell me a little bit about uh, your background and uh, the influences of your dad and your mother. Yeah, so I grew up in DC. Uh, my father is a larger-than-life character. You know, absolutely grew up as my hero. He built a very large company called well Western Development or Mills Corporation. He did things that even now, that actually, I can't believe he accomplished. The more actual experience I get, the more I'm blown away by the projects he did. Now that I appreciate how hard they are to do. Yes. And so, as a kid, it was really. I mean, I really grew up in his shadow and, and basically like tugging on his uh, apron strings, if you will, like really trying to get his attention and his attention was always hard to get. Uh-huh. Was, I think he got a cell phone like early eighties. It was the size of a large briefcase. <laughs> yeah. And from that point f- forward, he was, it was always next to his head. Uh-huh. He was always on the phone. And so, um, I think that like uh, the first you know, three decades of my life was really about trying to have, reconcile my relationship to my father, who is uh, just very loving, but absolutely like a person in his own head. And um, so you have to learn to meet him on his own terms. And that, that shaped why, I mean, why I'm in real estate and how I think about real estate. And then you know, when I turned about 30-ish, I, I went out on my own and took a different path. Sure. So tell me about your schooling and what influences those had on you. Yes, I went to UPenn, but by junior year, I really just, I just couldn't sit down and study all day without having some real application in work. I I found that actually, once I started working, it was an obsession. I, I bound a lot of my anxiety. I think I have a high energy. And so being able to put it into productive use by going to work changed how I felt about the world. You know, I could really get after making things happen. And so I started working junior year in college for Lubert Adler. And um, that, I think, had more influence on my life. How did you get that job? How did you get that job? Just by pure luck. I mean, my father knew Dean Adler. They were in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I I started intern for them. And then Ira Lubert, I think, took a shine to me. And so I spent a a lot of time with Ira Pena, sort of like a like his, his body is like uh, the person who went with him everywhere. And I learned a lot about real estate from Ira Lubert, who is... They're, they're financial geniuses, both of those guys, aren't they? Pretty yeah, and, and they just have a very sharp-edged way to think. They cut through a lot of the nonsense. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I learned a lot about how to structure deals and how to think about right. putting people in the right place in terms of alignment. A, a lot of real estate structuring is about aligning people at least to aligning them with what you want to have happen. Mm-hmm. And I watched Ira. He actually had a, a philosophy or a way of, of doing deals where he, people would come to them for money and he would say, uh, great, and essentially sell them the rope. Said, great, you can accomplish great things. And if you accomplish them, we'll make money together. And if you don't accomplish them, then you know, there'll be consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's a very smart way to, to structure deals because um, it puts you in a position of essentially having a win-win. And it's, uh, 
it's something I learned from him. And it definitely is, is important to make sure people are held accountable to what they say they'll do. Mm-hmm. Did you learn the concept of skin in the game from him? Yeah, he, I would say more like he would, you know, that I got organs in the game. <laughs> more than skin. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's interesting. So at Penn, did you study finance or what, were you, what, what, what was your focus there? Yeah, I studied economics. So I got a, a bachelor's in economics. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I've been fascinated by economics. I think, you know, real estate, the macro, this is, I mean, jumping to for a second, 2008. I mean, certainly my learning from 2008 was that the macro is more important than the micro. If you don't get the macro right, it doesn't matter how good your project is. When 2008 comes along and you're not ready, you get wiped out. Yep. So, so macro is, it's hard to see because it's so big, but it's, it swamps every little thing you do. And so you have to be focused on it. And that's where my economic background, I think, has been a little bit helpful. Well, to some extent, I agree with you. I think that um, if you stay micro, though, and you look very for the nuances within what you're doing, you can offset the macro influences in some respects as well by basically circumventing the things that happen on the big picture. So it's an interesting discussion, <laughs> but I'll, I'll defer on that a little bit. So how did, did your mother have uh, influences on you as well? Yeah. I mean, my mother is in some ways the opposite of my father. Uh-huh. They're divorced now because of that. So my father is a big vision, optimist, larger than life, just absolutely wants to make things happen and to be at the center of making things happen. My mother is a grounded, skeptical, at times pessimistic, you know, introvert. And so the two of them are, are uh, I hope that I take the best of both because I think that uh, my father, you know, being a great visionary, my mother being a skeptic, that's a great combination if you can combine the two. Yeah, if they can stay in the same room together. <laughs> that's interesting. So, well, that's good that you extracted the best from both, both, hopefully. So your dad obviously had huge influence on a lot of people and uh, being with him as much as you can. He must have said, you know, come on, Ben, why don't you join me at Western and be part of the team and become a developer? So. What, uh, what steered you there, and then why did you decide that development really wasn't for you in the long term, out of curiosity? He, early on, wanted me to join him. He's um, extremely persistent, <laughs> relentless, actually. Yes. And that's really one of his strengths that is, um, he's so relentless that you can't even, when you watch it over the years, you can't believe it. And so when I worked for what he did done without being that way, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, but it's you can't really just understand it by just saying relentless. I mean, you're just watching somebody run against a brick wall over and over again, and eventually go through it, and it looks so painful. <laughs> He's more like a tidal wave than a, than a relentless person. Indefatigable, <laughs> as I would say. Yeah. Okay. And so. When I worked for Ira, you know, Ira's uh, successful and, and, and in a similar space. And so I think that was really when he started to, to, to turn his attention to me. I think he didn't really 
think about me joining him before that, but then I was working for Ira in a somewhat related business. And that's when he started work on me. And I did not want to, I did not want to work for him. I wanted to do my own thing. I didn't want to be a real estate developer. I wanted to do something a little different, but um, in retrospect, it was right because it put me in a position of responsibility and authority that stressed my growth. I mean, I got to get essentially over my head. And that's like a management philosophy I have is that the best thing you do with a really talented person is put them over their head because they have to grow way faster. They learn from it and they really thrive off of it. Great people thrive yes. from being put over their head and having to sink or swim. And so he did that. And that's basically what, ultimately why I joined him and what, what came from it was, you know, a period of like incredible learning with everything I learned about real estate, I learned from him. And then, Oh, 2008 happened. And that's when I sort of rethought and what I wanted to do. So you were at Western at this time in 2008. Is that, is that right? You were back. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. He put you in to head, be president of the company. Is that correct? At Western? Yeah. Well, I, st- I didn't start there, but eventually I, I grew into that role. And he, you know, he and I were trying to figure out a way to build a new business, we're in Western Development 2.0. And the, you know, family businesses are challenging. He, he has a strong vision. It was kind of, you know, large scale retail, placemaking. That's what he's about. What were you working on at the time? Was it Gallery Place or was it after Gallery Place? I came in when Gallery Place was sort of midstream or like yeah. under development. Mm-hmm. And we did Georgetown Park, which was a, a whole saga into, unto itself. And then, you know, it was the it, redevelopment of Georgetown Park. The redevelopment right? of Georgetown Park, which ultimately right. got turned into big boxes and, and, right. de- and demauled. Right. And we had, um, you know, what was, what was so valuable about it was that during the 2008 financial crisis, you know, I'd read about something in the Wall Street Journal, and then I'd experience it firsthand you know, with uh, our banking partner, our lender, uh, went bankrupt, and uh, we had to then buy the debt out of bankruptcy. And I watched, potentially, the, the sort of the over-leveraging of the financial markets happen firsthand in the real estate deals we were in where the actual, you know, the, the source of the money, the places that were supposed to be the, the big guys were the ones who were most distressed, most overlevered. You know, they were essentially the emperor had no clothes. And that being able to actually experience it firsthand allowed me to kind of rethink how the world potentially could work. And that's when I left Western uh, to sort of go on a different path. Interesting. Didn't you start a project at Western that kind of became your first little crowdfunding opportunity in about 2010 I read about? Can yeah. Tell me so that I, story. So I'd, I'd left Western maybe a year before this to do small scale retail. I basically didn't, didn't want to do large scale real estate development I, for a lot of reasons. And uh, we we're, had an idea of, uh, buying and building in in emerging neighborhoods. So for people, you think about like the cycles from 2010 to 2015, there was this emergence of these neighborhoods that had been derelict or neglected since really, I would say that the riots of 68. I mean, why they, why do you think that happened, Ben? Why did the district, this is all in the District of Columbia you're talking about. Why did that happen well, in your mind? Well, so I, it really isn't. I mean, we... 
we ended up doing this in, in, in Brooklyn and uh, LA Arts District in, in um, California. I mean, we looked in Detroit. We looked in Cleveland. Oh, really? It was happening all over the country. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and that's actually one of the great things we, when we finally built Fundrise, to be able to look at real estate and see it happening, the same pattern happening in many places would really help you understand how to invest in a place. Sure. So, so why was it happening? It was really a re- reversion to the mean, if you will, when that these, these cities have a natural fabric and there's a natural gravity to like 14th Street or H Street or these major thoroughfares in the cities that had been killed by white flight and by a sort of urban decay that I say was un- an unnatural period, a period that was um, a result of you know, race relations and sort of financial uh, mismanagement by a lot of the cities. And as basically a new generation came of age, they wanted to be in cities, they wanted to live in vibrant right. places, right. and they went and moved to these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. We, were, we, you know, we were, I was of that generation, so we saw it early, invested in it early, and now those neighborhoods, they price comparable to any core real estate location. But like that was not, you know, that going from $150 a square foot to $600 a square foot happened in about five or six years. It's incredible. So talk about that deal that you, the first one that you had that is written about on H Street. Talk about that deal a little bit and what your experience was there. So that deal is called McKe- uh, 1351 H Street. McKetto is the tenant. In um, 2010, we, we went off to start doing small-scale urban redevelopment. And what I discovered was that we could raise money for large-scale real estate. We are typically raising money from private equity funds. The checks are, are 25 to $50 million. That, that's the equity check? Yes. And... That's what your dad was doing. That's what my dad was doing. That's what I was doing with him. Right. And then when I went off to do small-scale real estate, I discovered there was no capital source. Mm-hmm. That you had to raise the money through syndication, through friends and family. Right. It was extremely arbitrary. If you were able to raise that money, it had to do with your, your network, mm-hmm. nothing to do with the project. Right. And it was um, an inefficiency because... There's nothing about those projects that are better or worse than big projects. There's just no scale for, for institutional money, so it's not attractive to them. Mm-hmm. So I found that there was a, a problem in terms of how, how money flowed into real estate. And when I was, we were doing that project, which Maketo uh, is probably one of the best retail restaurant concepts in the city. It's just, if you go walk it, it's a great, we did, I mean, I, we did a great job on it in terms of how, how it feels is like kind of a Los Angeles type sense of like indoor outdoor space. And at the time when we talked to people who were raising money from most wealthy people in DC lived in the suburbs, lived in Potomac and Bethesda. And they right. never heard of a street Northeast. They literally mm-hmm. never heard of the neighborhood. Right. And uh, anybody from the neighborhood was excited about it, saw it as, as like obvious and, and they kind of wanted to be part of that, that growth. In the, mm-hmm. in the in the corridor. Yep. And so I said, well, there's a disconnect here because the people who get it can't invest and the people who, who don't get it uh, can. 
And so then sort of like, uh, I was walking my dog. I said, well, why can't raise money on the internet for this project? So why did you want to go through the agony of doing that as opposed to saying, calling your dad and say, dad, I've got this deal and you know, it's only going to cost me about $325,000 of equity. Can you lend me the money <laughs> to do this and I'll pay you back as, as this project gets up and running? Or, uh, I mean, did you have that thought or was it just? Uh... Yeah, I mean, but the, the opportunity was to solve the problem, not okay. to do the deal. Oh, okay. All and, right. that's, and, and because if we, if we needed the money, yep. To go through the agony, as you described it, the agony to, of creating that first online fundraise for real estate, mm-hmm. that was incredibly difficult to do. Yes. Just to give you a sense of it, like when we first started that idea, it was, it was late 2011, there had never been, no, no one had ever raised money for real estate on the internet, uh, at least as far as I know. So we had to go to the SEC. I mean, I, I mean, I literally got a meeting with the Securities and Exchange Commission mm-hmm. and went in there and said, this is what we want to do. Yep. And they were, thought that was like hilarious. Because okay. it was $325,000 is is really a small amount. It's small for real estate, but it's even smaller for the public markets. Typical public market. Sure. It's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars. Of course. And so SEC doesn't really see deals that small. No. But it was 2010, 11 and that period, there was a, a real collapse in the capital markets. And so there was a willingness from all sorts of people to look at creating new models for what they call capital formation. And the SEC said, okay, well, that's, that sounds like an interesting idea. We're game. And I spent a year with them, uh, hired a guy named Marty Dunn, who was former general counsel for the SEC and head of Corp Fin, uh, corporate finance. and they figured out how to make it possible. So we were the guinea pig or the, the edge of the plow and um, had, developed the model had for how kick, we would raise money. Yeah. Hadn't Kickstarter gotten up and running at that point in the, in the tech space or and not? Kickstarter was, I mean, Kickstarter is, is what they call crowdfunding, which is right. raising money from the crowd for a, a project. Those are technically a donation. They're not, they're not a security. You're okay. not owning anything. There's no shares. There's no debt. There's no instrument. There's no what, you, what what SEC would consider a um, a means for profit. Okay. It's it's uh, it's more like an online donation, like Change.org. And okay. so SEC basically said this is not this is not a, inside our purview. So that was a social mission. That wasn't necessarily a VC crowdfunding type of. Thing. Yeah, it, it technically was not an investment, and mm-hmm. so it. I mean, it was a good idea for mm-hmm. sure, but it, I mean, we had to go create a model with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which later uh, became the Jobs Act. Right. And, um, you know, we, we, we weren't the only ones trying to help create this model, but it became a model for, I think, the future of finance, which is using internet, using you know, technology to uh, raise money and invest in things. Had the blockchain even started at that point, or was this before that even? Blockchain definitely wasn't part of this. I mean, blockchain came about contemporaneous, but really the mania for, for Bitcoin and investing in blockchain, I feel like that didn't happen for until 20, 
14 or 15. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So you were really at the cutting edge here. I assume that some VC firms were doing it too, at least thinking smaller scale than the SEC minimums for investing. Because the laws, you might want to give a quick summation of the restrictions in real estate investing. I assume by now you're an expert at that. So give a quick overview of what the law was before the Jobs Act and what it is now as a, as a result of that, just out of curiosity. Yeah, it, it changed a lot and I can get too technical. So I try to stay- Keep it as high level as you yeah, can. Yeah, but basically the securities law came out of 1933, 1934. So it was a um, result of the Great Depression and trying to come up with a, a way to regulate the you know the financiers who had blown up the economy back then, and it had not evolved as much as you might imagine in the 70, 80 years since, and it certainly didn't contemplate the internet. The internet they had very little on the books around the internet from the from the late 90s, mm-hmm. and so the concept in securities law was basically either you're doing a public offering, you're raising money through an IPO with a full blown, you know reviewed offering where the SEC looks at your disclosures, opines on them or, or, or gives you comments and then clears them for a public offering. Mm-hmm. Or on the other side of the extreme, it was a private offering. It basically was essentially meant to be secret. So you, you were not allowed to have any public disclosure about the, the fundraise. And it was so extreme that like, if you, know, you were raising money and somehow it got out into the public article that written or it's on like some, some conference in your, and you spoke on a panel, you would literally have to go cold and, and stop fundraising for six months. So that's how, how extreme they had this sort of this idea of it being completely private. And the only people you could raise money from people you had preexisting relationships from that you had to have and already also know qualified as well. Qualified. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you had to be accredited, accredited investor, or a yeah, qualified purchaser. And so you had to be high net worth. And so it was um, a very binary type of way of thinking about fundraising. And it really wasn't how fundraising worked in real life. And certainly didn't contemplate the way the world works today, which is that there's no such thing as a secret anymore. Internet makes all information transparent to everyone almost all the time. And so they... The SEC did an incredible job trying to modernize, and they did that in the Jobs Act. Had, the Jobs Act had a lot of pieces. The point was to bring it to a world where technology could help improve capital formation, and it did that by letting people raise money, you know, in, in, not in secret. So they went from 506B to 506C, lets you basically raise money on the internet from high net worth people. They created a, a, something that we use, which is Regulation A, which lets you raise money from anybody as long as the SEC did a, uh, a review of your offering, but without having to go fully public. So they created all sorts of, of interesting exemptions or modernizations to the rules. And it caused an explosion in innovation because often regulation and human behavior lags technological change. And it takes a while. I mean, the, so the printing press, for example, really didn't get momentum, Gutenberg's printing press. I think it was 80 years before it started to, to be used by people figure out what to use it for. 
And so it takes, it takes time for people to figure out how to leverage technology in a way that basically works for like, a, mass, a mass consumer. Fascinating. So you, by you hiring uh, uh, Mr. Dunn, I think his name is, your, mm-hmm. uh, was he an attorney, I assume, with the SEC? He uh, was at the SEC, just left. He did it basically for free, <laughs> almost. He charged us three hours. Was he a friend of your dad's or how did you get to know him? No, just by pure luck. Because I mean, we're based in D.C. is a small world. Right. And I, I asked a friend how to do this. I'd actually seen probably eight law firms and all eight law firms told me it was a bad idea. It wasn't possible. Right. And one of these guys who used to be at the SEC said, well, you should just go ask Marty Dunn. Marty knows everything. <laughs> That's and, and he, it's just like, you know, it's like real estate, right? If you want to go get entitlements in a city, yep. usually only one or two attorneys who know That's how right. to do it. Yep, exactly. And that's true with everything. There's always like one or two people who are the people who know the answer to how to do something. And then everybody else is just uh, going to charge you money and waste your time. And so Marty knew the answer. And Marty, he, he, he did it because he thought it was fun and interesting and cutting edge. And he didn't really, you know, he, you know when J.P. Morgan would pay $250,000 for him to sign a document, you know, so for, for us, we were like, uh, his Iliamaasanary activity. <laughs> you were a curiosity for him to some extent. I imagine. Yeah, he, it was, I mean, you know, for a, for a securities nerd like he is, or I am at this point, and doing new things can be fun. Yeah, exactly. So I assume that this then led to the formation of your company. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we get, it was funny because we, we spent a year building the first you know, real, what came, came called a real estate crowdfunding deal. We had to do the real estate development, which is, you know, you have to get plans and permits and, and financing and, and leasing and all that stuff. We had to create the first online public offering. We had to go through the SEC and spend a year, you know, getting the SEC and securities regulators to sign off on it. And then we had to build a, a, plat- a tech platform, a software platform. And we had to invent... Like, how do you check out for security on the internet? Like, that was a, to create sort of a checkout flow. And, and what's, what, are, what are people signing? And what are the terms and conditions? And Were those people that are still on your team that you brought in to do that with? Yeah, um, that's one of the best and most fortunate parts of our success is we ended up building a team who are extraordinary individuals mm-hmm. and are still with us now. And each one of those teams, our CTO, our chief product officer, our chief operating officer or general counsel, go down the list. We, they're all, I mean, we, they joined back in 2012 mm-hmm. and they're all, the, the core team's still here with me, you know, as my teammates. The reason we're successful is because of the extraordinary abilities of these individuals. I mean, they're just, I mean, I, I can't even believe how talented they are. But we had to invent new models, which became the norm. You know, if you go look at any checkout for any security, follows what we created all sorts of straight you know things that you don't even notice and this is like what the thing with the internet or the thing about any technology right is it's it goes from novel to invisible as you develop the norms for it that's an interesting concept novel to invisible i like that that's that's good so you don't even know you're doing it after a while it's what you're saying it's like 
brand new. And then once you're doing it, you don't think about it anymore. You just do it. Is that pretty much what you're saying? Yeah. You just think that, well, that's how the world works. Right. <laughs> right. That's interesting. So you made, I, I read a, a quote from you that I'd like you to talk about uh, in another interview, which I think is really interesting. And the quote is, focus on the synapse, the nexus of different industries. For Fundrise, it was the consumer technology, securities, regulations, and real estate. What brought you, what brought about this thought process for you? And what research did you do to align those industries into a business? And you've already talked about the research, it sounds like, at least on the security side, but the consumer technology piece, how did you bring that into the equation? A little bit. Yeah. So the, the consumer technology in the software world, they call it product or product thinking. Mm-hmm. And the product people are the people who are, are most or like top, top, one of the top most valued people in an organization. Mm-hmm. If you're at Facebook, if you're at Google, the product people are the people who figure out what the thing is and how it should work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, in real estate, that's pretty close to what the developer does mm-hmm. and what happens i think in any space any industry is the industry gets mature and then it will evolve because something comes along usually technology but sometimes consumer preferences that combines it with something else so that's what happened with with e-commerce right so retail mm-hmm. evolved because it combined shopping with technology mm-hmm. And so you say that's so obvious that that's what happened. But if you were a retailer in the early 90s or even 2000s, thinking about combining with technology was not on the top of your mind. Well, you know, the biggest example, of course, is Amazon. You think if you've read Jeff Bezos's book about, uh, and you, you even cited it to me, as I remember, to, on a note, how he came up with the concept of, you know, putting books online. And he had done that so early on that nobody had done it before. So it's an interesting model to do that. Yeah, but putting strange things together, combining, in this case, real estate with technology, it seems obvious, but most people don't, don't do that. Most people f- feel comfortable and spend most of their time in their industry, in their day-to-day is about their industry, and they spend little, little to no time outside their industry. So how many real estate people go to tech conferences? How many tech tech people go to real estate conferences? Mm -hmm. And it's become more popular now in the last few years, prop tech to to do the combination, but was definitely not common in real estate back in 2010. And so what drove drove you to think that you could make this work? I mean, what, what was it that you felt strongly about it? Did you get some feedback from, from customers that said, you know, God, this is really cool. Or what was it that kind of drove you to, to, to make this happen? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, it's, it's funny because it didn't really work for a few years, 2012, 13, 14. Um, we did not have what they call in tech world product market fit. Mm-hmm. And so product market fit is when you have a, a, a product that fits the market and then it has explosive growth. And we did not have product market fit. And we, I think maybe my, my father's uh, relentlessness rubbed <laughs> off on me. And so we, we kept after it, despite having 
pretty small amount of growth. If you had like a growth curve of our business and you looked at it from 2012 to 2015, basically it looked flat. Mm -hmm. We just had very little growth. And why did we stay after? I mean, I, I, we just thought it was the right idea and we just yep. kept after it. I don't think when you start a business, it's not logical. I mean, you can explain it logically, but it's driven by some sense of wanting to solve a problem or wanting to, to mm-hmm. you know, make something that didn't exist before. And you, it's some sort of emotional or, or internally driven need that manifests as like a relentless desire to drive change. So that's what we did. And I would say, if you look at it, so you were, 20, 2017, yeah. you were pushing, the, fly, you were pushing the flywheel. You were pushing the flywheel really strong at first, but it wasn't moving. And then at a, after a certain period of time, perhaps when the Jobs Act occurred, the flywheel started to spin and it started spinning faster and faster at that point. Is that? Yeah, that's right. Analogy? Flywheel is exactly the right uh, metaphor. And this guy from Y Combinator talks about great businesses like Airbnb. Amazon do not scale in the beginning. Yeah. Like there, mm-hmm. there is no, they, the flywheel seems like you're grinding That's right. like a, a, some mill. I mean, it's just absolutely brutal in the beginning. And which, which turns out to be a gift in the, at the time, it seems like a punishment. But what it means is that when somebody copies you later, when you finally have scale, they have to catch up with you. And they, there's a period that they have to then go through of, of grinding to catch up with you that makes it difficult for them to do. Mm-hmm. And so that initial sort of brutal period ends up being like a barrier for other people to have to follow you that prevents them from really get, catching up. My assumption is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when you, got, when you started and you were in that process, you had certain goals to accomplish and those goals evolved as that flywheel started moving, I assume. So talk about the evolution of your, of your long-term thinking on the project. I mean, initially, I assume that you just get this deal done, get our regulations going, and get the business such that we can really attract, you know, small-scale investors into real estate. Oh, we've gotten there. Now what? <laughs> so how did that transition occur in your thinking? from getting your objectives going very slowly yeah i mean it's it was driven by a feel i i came out of 2008 feeling like the financial system was broken and in 2008 the the banks basically were responsible for the collapse through bad behavior both you know illegal potentially and and then just bad bad alignment there was just a lot of bad decision making at these banks. And then they got bailed out mostly. And so I came away feeling like the system's broken. It's, it's morally bankrupt. We have to create a different system, an alternative system, and let's do it through the internet. And so it was a feeling of, of taking on a really big challenge and thinking that sooner or later it would work. And that's a great, the great thing about being young is that you don't know how hard and brutal the world is. And so you will start to do things that, in retrospect, you may not have done. But you, once, you, once you're in motion, you can't stop. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, our initial successes were small, but we felt like they were big because we were small. And, it, it, you know, you sort of yoke yourself to a, a business that you can't stop until it's 
until you become successful. It's, I think any great idea, you become a steward to the idea. The idea becomes like your master and you end up a slave to the success of the company. Mm-hmm. And so you, you don't have an option. Your only option is forward. Right. Talk about the competitive nature of the space that you've more or less created. There are several other platforms now emulating you, I think, although maybe they started a similar time frame to you, but you seem to have moved forward. I haven't really done a competitive analysis. I assume you do. You understand what your competitive space is. Mm-hmm. Talk about that and how you differentiate yourself and some of the products you've come up with since you started that have kind of made set Fundrise apart from other, other firms. Yeah. Yeah. So we were the first in 2012. There really weren't anybody who, um, there were in 2014 when we started seeing other people show up. It's interesting. Like any great idea, other people may have had it. And although they may have seen what we did, they, they also may have, you know, it's hard, hard for me to say whether they outright copied us or just, it was just a coincidence. But you know, by 2014, we had a few more companies look at doing the space. And then by 2015 or 16, there must have been 100 companies. Who <laughs> maybe, I mean, I think the count was one point, like 120 wow. uh, companies doing it. I believe, you know, by 2023, there'll be either just us left or maybe two or three, at most three players uh-huh. left. Interesting. Uh, the, the reason I think that basically everyone else either will go out of business or, or most will, or most have already, I mean, there's probably now only, only a few left standing, is that they didn't evolve like, like they should have. And so we as a business essentially changed our business model or evolved every 18 to 24 months. Interesting. <clears throat> and, and so talk about that strategy, your thought process there. I think it happens in every business in real estate. It definitely happens. It doesn't happen every 18, 24 months. It happens usually every, every five to seven years. Mm-hmm. In tech, it happens much more quickly. Yep. And so we, we always chased the consumer's desire. So you listen to what the consumer is telling you and you, and you, and you evolved to basically do a better job to meet it. And so we, we were originally raising money for real estate deals, our own real estate deals through the internet. And then we evolved to basically raising money to, to invest in other real estate deals uh, as, like a, as like a platform. And then by 2015, we, we moved to this e-REIT model, which is basically a form of private equity, real estate private equity. And real estate private equity is a great business. It's not like you can say, is this idea going to work? Right? You know real estate private equity is going to work. And the idea became, okay, how do you get, how do you make it accessible to everybody? How do you basically lower the barriers to entry? How do you lower the cost structure? Mm-hmm. How do you uh, basically do real estate private equity better, faster, cheaper than the traditional player? And that is a winning formula. You know, we know that the big private equity funds have historically been as good, if not better, than the stock market, and certainly a, a, a diversifier or, or a non-correlated asset class. And we evolved to become that product. How, how so are now, you able to get um, a licensing uh, arrangement for the, the name e 
because if you go online and look it up, it goes directly to your site and no one else can use that. I believe you trademarked it. Is that correct? Yeah, we, cause we came up with it back in 2015 uh-huh. and, and after five years you end up with the trademark. So we, we ended up with it because it was, it became by, sort of by use. So, cause no, actually no one else was using it at the time. And at this point we, we own the concept. Uh, we own the brand. But anyways, the point is that, is that um, the real estate guy, like, like I was, had a certain idea of how, how this sort of online fundraising or how you know, fundraise should work. And that wasn't correct. What I, I, I learned from, and, and so much of success in a startup, so much of success in, as an entrepreneur is basically to you know, shed ideas that don't work mm-hmm. and to look at reality and let, let reality tell you the answer and not have preconceived notions. And so the real estate player in the industry feels like it should be investing in deals. That's what they care about. They're, the real estate player is obsessed with deals. Right. And, they, and the consumer is not. Mm-hmm. That, um, our investors are not deal junkies. And so the entire, everyone else out there who created similar concepts as Fundrise listened to the real estate industry and built their business around deals. And, and that is going to kill them. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the 2020 pandemic, you know, some huge number of their deals are probably going to fail. And that's going to basically take their platforms down. That's interesting. Because the nature of, of, of investing for a normal person is about building a diversified portfolio that does well in good times and bad times. And no real estate player can do that deal by deal. So your lens to investing is different than a real estate investor's. So what you're saying is you have a consumer oriented lens to looking at deals is what you're thinking. Is that? Yeah. I mean, it, it makes us fundamentally different than any private equity fund. Understood. The, the private, there's, there's a industry bias and then there's a structural bias. Mm-hmm. So, so in, there's a fancy way of saying this, so that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. <laughs> okay. You're going to have to explain those terms a little bit here. And so ontogeny means the nature of something ontological is what it is. Uh-huh. Phylogeny is the structure of something. Okay. And so the nature of something recapitulates how it's structured. Uh-huh. And so the, so the financial industry has, is structured to reward the middleman. The incentives are around promotes, around fees, and that makes them behave a certain way that's not necessarily in the best interest of the end investor. Mm-hmm. That's what the subprime mortgage crisis was all about mm-hmm. is that they didn't really care if the mortgage was good because they sold the mortgage off. And so the structure of the industry made the industry collapse and that's ultimately what it became. And so in real estate, the problem is the reason why it's such a boom bust in, in the industry is the, is the, the players involved make most of their money through fees and through their promotes. Mm-hmm. And so they end up with a heads I win, tails you lose 
structure where the end investor makes money when everything's good, but loses money when everything's bad, and the real estate developer doesn't usually. I mean, what's happened, especially now, in a world where non-recourse lending has become the norm, it used to be the you know in nineteen early nineties all lending was was recourse, and very little lending is recourse today. You know, CMBS and GSE lending mostly non-recourse, so the real estate developer doesn't have the amount of skin in the game as they used to, and so you you end up with a lot of projects that don't succeed because the investor is not really aligned with the the manager or the or the sponsor. Interesting. I think developers might argue with your premise that, you know, they don't lose. <laughs> they only put, you know, anywhere between three to five, maybe 10 years of their time in a deal. And to them, it's, you know, that's their life. <laughs> so in the, it may not financial loss, but their time is worth a lot to them. So <laughs> I know, but I, I it's, um, <laughs> I've seen... 20,000 deals probably in the last five years. Okay. And uh, when you see 20,000 deals, you see 19,500 conflicts of interest. Yep. Okay. And so I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm skeptical that um, when somebody comes, brings me a deal and they want money that they happens to be that's in their interest to get the money. It may not be in the interest of the investor to put that money into the deal, even if they put their time into it. That doesn't mean it's going to be a good result for the investor. Interesting. So talk about your current uh, portfolio of investments. And then looking at, you know, what you just said in your lens and how you look at things, talk about how you look at things, you know, what what you invest in, why you're investing in them vis-a-vis other alternatives and the overall thought process of your, your philosophy from that standpoint. So the internet dictates how we have to behave, how we're structured. And the internet is about ruthless competitive forces. I mean, nothing is more efficient than the internet. And so what happens in any business that operates on sort of the broad technological platform that is, we think of the internet, but technology people would say, well, mobile is not internet, but mobile is something different than web. But it, it means that you end up having very low fees, very low cost structure. I mean, your cost structure is, is, is tight. Mm-hmm. If you look at Amazon as a perfect example, it's a race to the bottom right. in terms of cost mm-hmm. and a race to the top in terms of scale. Mm-hmm. And that's not how real estate works at all. Nope. There's, it's all about fees, all about high margins. And private equity space is very, very well compensated as an example I mean, you'll see people getting paid tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in private equity. Two and um, 20. Two and 20. And that, and then that's actually not all the fees. Typically there's like mm-hmm. other fees buried in those docs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the headline fees. Mm-hmm. And internet basically doesn't allow for that level of fee load. And so we, our fee structure is a, is a 1%, so less than, less than 1% asset management fee. We take no promote. And our, the, our, our belief is that as we get to scale, the traditional private equity funds can't compete at that level of fee load. It's just too thin and it will disrupt them to basically, if we can build a model where we have comparable performance with them, but a lower cost structure and a technological backbone, 
they're in big trouble. And that's basically what Amazon did. It took time. And I wasn't, I mean, I worked for my father. I was in retail development in 2000s. And it wasn't obvious in 2000s that Amazon was going to destroy our business. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's obvious to the, to the real estate industry that we're, that we are going to disrupt their business. So you see yourself as the Amazon of real estate investment? Is that what you're thinking? Yes. That's okay. what I think. Is good. I mean, it's it, it, just like Amazon, they're still going to be Walmart. Right. They're still going to be sure. major players. It's not like it's going to go away, but it's not that hard to imagine that online anything will become a dominant player in every industry. I've seen well, you. So you asked a question about what does that mean for our deals? Sure. Go ahead. And so just a, a, a simple example is most real estate professionals in private equity and then a developer essentially conforms to the private equity model, focus on IRR. Right. <laughs> IRR, internal rate of return, is, uh, is time value of money. And the way you get a high IRR is by essentially trading real estate through speed. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult in real estate to make 10x or 100x on real estate. Probably impossible to make 100x on real estate where in tech it's possible. In um, land development you can, but, you know. Only through leverage. Well, of course. <laughs> uh-huh. There's yeah. no leverage in, in Google, right? They're, they don't, have, I don't think Google and Apple have any, any um, debt. debt, but yeah. they made a thousand X. So you don't have the growth rates in, in real estate as you do in well, tech. That's, consumer, that's a consumer business. So it's a different. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, the tech business has a different growth rate. Right. And so what happens in real estate is that it's typically about to get high IRRs, you need two things. You need, uh, well, you need a good growth investment, but that's not enough because typically a good growth investment in real estate will grow three to 5% a year it would be pretty decent growth rate. Mm-hmm. And so to get high IRR, which would be 20%, you need leverage and you need speed. And cap rate compression also helps. <laughs> that helps, but if you hold a 10-year investment, it's difficult to get a 20% IRR. But if you can do it in three years, it's mm-hmm. very doable. And so the, the private equity funds that, I, that are successful usually are in and out pretty quickly into real estate. So they buy, they buy a, a building. Yes. And it's more of a trade to them than yep. it is a, the way a, a real estate person thinks about it, which is a long-term trend. And then leverage is, is critical. And, and the leverage in private equity is actually almost invisible to the real estate guy because it's not, it's not just happening at the deal. The deal might have 65, 75% leverage, but the fund is levered too. Oh, yeah. And they typically do a subscription line mm-hmm. where the first 35% of the money they invest is actually borrowed against right. the capital commitments. Yep. And so if you think about it, right, if the first third of your equity goes into the deal is you're paying 3% on from a, a subscription line from a bank, and then you put the money in and then you have it back out because it's, so, it's such a short period, that's how you hit a high IRR. And that's a form of leverage on leverage. The entire CMBS industry is based on what you just talked about. So, uh, you know, and that's basically what blew up in March that's right. because of the pandemic. Uh-huh. That's right. And so, so the point is that that's an IRR 
But a normal person, even if a sophisticated investor does not have an intuitive sense what an IRR is and not how they're judging them. They're not saying, oh, I invested in the stock market and had a good IRR. Mm -hmm. IRR is, is not a normal way to think about investing. It's a construct as a result, as, as I said, of ontogeny, recapitulates phylogeny. It's how the industry is structured, how the industry is rewarded. And so it forces the industry into high leverage, high speed. And if I'm an investor, like if I'm a normal person, I'm 35 years old. If I'm investing, I'm probably really investing for 30 years. Most people are investing. Longer. For, yeah. And so it doesn't really benefit them to go in and out of assets every three years and no. pay two and 20 and flip, two and 20 and flip, two and 20 well, and flip. Because yeah, I that's, mean, not thinking, how they're, that's not how their investment structured. Right. Well, the guy I think of when you t- in the strategy you're talking about is the founder of Vanguard, John Bogle, which is a, they were a securities firm that he created the basically the mutual fund and the reducing fees as low as possible in that industry, in the stock business, because you're thinking long and scale is the key. Build the scale and they became huge, obviously, in doing it and still made enough enough money he didn't he didn't you know i don't he may have eventually become a billionaire because of scale no. but well vanguard's owned by its investors right so it's aligned in a way that's different than blackrock which is right. not owned by the investors mm-hmm. so it's as an example of alignment a perfect example of alignment so it, and yeah, i think jack bow who passed on recently i think he had a net worth of about 100 million mm-hmm. well you know um Trish Horseman or, or Larry Fink have uh, billionaires. But the, the point is, is that our investor and the type of deals we focus on are much more about what is a good, good long-term value investment over, over a decade, not about you know, getting a 20% IRR for two years or five years and then blowing up in year seven, starting a new fund, mm-hmm. you know, getting a dispensation on that fund because, well, it's not my fault. The vintage was bad. You know, everybody lost money in 2009. It's not because of my investments. It's just because everybody's, you know, everybody lost money. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not to blame. That's basically not right. That just is convenient. Interesting. So one other thing I want to get into in this, in this vein, it looks in, in my quick scan of your website and your investments, it looks like you have, at least two strategies and maybe more. One is focused on mezzanine and preferred equity, secondary financing investments and deals. And the other one is equities where you're taking a, a position either on a joint venture basis or wholly owned owner equity ownership and property. And it seems to me that those are mostly in development or opportunistic type deals. So that's your higher risk spectrum. And your, your secondary financing structure is a, perhaps a more steady income, safer investment approach to it. Is, is that, am I capsulizing your strategy or is, it, is there more to it than, I'm, than I've mentioned? It's close. So I would say there's three. You okay. do a, a debt or structured debt into residential. And that, as you said, is preferred equity. So you want to be the is red it for thread sale, for sale residential or you know mostly apartments a little bit of for sale we'd be a senior lender on for sale in urban infill housing so okay. that which is not 
uh, Greenfield. Okay. But our, our goal is always to focus on value okay. and basis. Mm-hmm. And so the thinking is if you, get, if you can get to a, a good basis below replacement cost, then you're going to be okay in the long term. And so we would do that through going in as preferred equity, so you go in at 85 cents on the dollar or senior lending, 70 cents on the dollar, or joint venture equity in apartments where you're buying class B or B plus and you're at you know, 25, 35% discount to new, new construction. So mm-hmm. our, our, always our thinking has been, you want to get into a, a good growth market like you know, typically the smile states, you know, the, the, the warm southern states where there's a lot of population growth, get into those, those markets at below replacement cost and get into a below replacement cost through a structured investment if, if, if necessary or by buying right at below, uh, below par. So that would have been our strategy for years. And then we, do, we did start a development uh, focus. And so we, we have a, a, a portfolio of properties we're developing and we're developing in-house, which we can talk about. But development is much more risky. And the way we de-risk it is we had no debt. So we would do, we're doing development all equity, which means that if there is a crisis in the middle of the development deal, you're not likely to lose the asset mm-hmm. because you have no lender. And that is what just happened. If anybody had ground-up development or, you know, let's say on for sale housing, right now you are at risk of losing the property to the lender. Mm-hmm. And we, we have no debt. So as a long-term investor, we, we're okay with not having debt for maybe the first two years in a project because it's not about IRR, right? It's not about getting a huge, a huge pop right away. It's about getting the right product in the right place for the long term. And you just don't want to take risk that you lose your principal just because a crisis comes out of nowhere when you're not prepared. So those are the two, the two strategies are, are about you know, getting in on the right basis or building or buying in the right place with the right risk profile. So in a recent interview, I read that you, you quoted from uh, Nassim Taleb's book, anti-fragile. I've read the book and it's, I think I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's a really, really good book and among his other books as well. But he talks in that book about a barbell strategy of both safe current returns and then a smaller high-risk portion is a strategy to consider, you know, to, to be able to take care of, take advantage of black swan events, as he calls them, which is mm-hmm. perhaps where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Did you Think about that, that thought process in your, in your investment strategies, out of curiosity. Yeah, I love that book. And that book is, I mean, anti-fragile means that you grow from a shock. So a shock to your body will grow your, will, will make you stronger. Right. And that's what anti-fragile is. Right. And so, so many of our investment strategies we're predicated on the assumption that there's going to be a shock and the shock basically would be an opportunity, not a problem. And that's one of the ways you do that in real estate is you hold a lot of cash. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it's a drag, you know, it has a, um, a short-term drag on, on returns, which is not good for IRR. So like, to a lot of our private equity fund, you know, sort of friends would tell me like, well, you guys have uh, all this cash on hand because you raise money, you don't have commitments. Isn't that a problem? And I said, well, it depends, right? So right now we have a huge amount of cash on hand. It's the middle of a financial crisis and it's an incredible opportunity for us. Right. And so the Nassim Tlaib idea of, of building models that do well in a crisis and really, you know, underperform at the top of the market. When everything's going really well, that's when we do, we're at our worst. We're like a polar bear in the summer. <laughs> okay. And, and so, uh, yeah, our, our strategy was you, you try to get in below replacement cost and then position yourself for opportunistic acquisitions in a crisis. Fascinating. So it sounds like you do emulate his thinking a little bit here in this regard. If you try, I mean, he's, he's a very deep thinker. Right. <laughs> so it's, right. it's uh, I think you can't really emulate it without being a mathematician. Oh, yeah. But I mean, philosophically, I mean, you're kind of close to that, it sounds like, in your strategy. I will say I'll, I'll aspire. So that's the end of uh, part one of my interview with, with Ben Willer. And I'd like now to segment, segue to my conversation with Tom Amos. He is my new sidekick on the podcast who will be helping me to kind of look back at our discussion with my guests and give a, a fresh perspective based on his being a young leader with ULI and having a very keen interest in the podcast itself. And I really appreciate you joining me with this, Tom. Welcome. Thank you, John. Really appreciate um, you getting me involved and uh, really looking forward to moving forward with this journey and uh, excited to help. So thank you. So in, in specific, uh, what this postscript will be going forward is to clarify any items in the podcast that Tom may not understand, just to give perspective for somebody who's not an expert in, in, the, in the subject that we talk about. And then also, uh, we would give some insight and depth into some of the items that uh, may have been kind of passed over that may need a little further understanding. On that thesis, um, let me get into, so first we talked a little bit about Ben Miller's current role. And so then after that, I get into the COVID crisis and what we're, what his perspective of the COVID crisis is. And um, Tom, what did you think of what Ben had to say there? Well, so, you know, what a what a great first guest to to get to work on. I, I was really impressed with this podcast, and 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 Ben was a, a really great person and in, in, in interview that you had here. You know, I think it it's abundantly clear that he's a very forward thinking and, uh, and and brilliant person. You know, the other issue here with with COVID, there, I read some interesting statistics of some things on 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 savings accounts and 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 as a result of COVID. So, you know, the interesting thing has been, even with, with everything that's going on with the economy right now, that savings accounts for, for the average American have gone up. And, and we talked about this, uh, you know, this is very much a, a flash in the pan type scenario, but it's surprising 
to hear something like that when that comes out. But, you know, it, it has one to do with, you know, the unemployment benefits have been rolled out in April and then largely contributable to the drop in consumer spending. The U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics announced that, uh, that in April, as a result of COVID, that consumer spending was down 13.6%. Personal income, though, as a result of that, has gone up 10.5% uh, in the month of April. You know, Bank of America, they, they announced that 30 to 40% of their, their checking accounts have gone up since pre-COVID. And, and, you know, these things aren't sustainable, but I, I guess why I bring this up is what Ben and Fundrise are offering out there is a platform for investment for somebody that may be finding themselves with, with a little bit extra cash from less spending, whether that's travel or, or going out to restaurants or just less spending as a result of COVID. And, you know, who, who knows where the economy goes from here, but I, I think that there are a lot of people that have, have floated the idea of us being in some type of inflationary period uh, longer term after here. And, and here Ben's offering kind of a, a safe haven for, for maybe some savings uh, longer term in, in an event that we are facing something that not a lot of us have looked at in a long time. So I guess what are, what are some of your thoughts, John, on, on kind of uh, Ben's model and, and, and how that plays out longer term? Well, I think it, as Ben and I talk about, we get into the alternatives that you have and looking at long-term investing, you want to be in a stable investment medium. And obviously the volatility of the stock market, et cetera, is, is incredible as you've seen over the last 60 to 90 days. Hard to say that you know, the stock market is really foreseeing the right thing when it's rebounded so dramatically, when the economy certainly is just in the early innings of its recovery, uh, it's going to be a long, long slog. Real estate is a typically a long-term investment, so it doesn't react to the immediate vagaries of the marketplace, and it's a safe haven. You typically, however, the the other side of the coin is it's an investment that you don't use as a liquidity thing. So you basically make it a long-term investment. And for young people, typically you invest for 30 to 40 years long because you look, you're investing for a retirement or a point where you're not needing to earn income as much anymore for various reasons. So uh, what Ben's platform is to reduce the, the entry cost of investing in real estate significantly. And uh, that's the, the fundamental reason of why he decided to do what he did. And so it's a, st it's a stabilizing factor in your portfolio investing that you should think about long term. So the, the savings point that you made is, I believe, temporary because we're a consuming society. And once we open things up again, people right. will start to spend. However, if you are making investing investments, this is a good a good way to go, certainly. One other thing that Ben talks about with you was recourse lending. And he makes the, the comment that recourse lending, you know, was, was common in the 90s and has somehow changed over the course of the past 20 or 30 years. And I suspect that the SNL 
crisis is what he was kind of getting at and having some type of impact. I guess, John, if you could kind of explain what what maybe you guys were were covering there with recourse lending and how that's how that's changed over the course of the past thirty years. So, thirty years ago, we had the S and L industry, uh, along with the the commercial banking industry, of course, that did primarily the invest the, the lending for both construction financing as well as long term lending to properties that didn't qualify for life insurance uh, lending, which was long-term lending at the time. Uh, That was really the only alternative for commercial borrowers, was typically life insurance, long-term lending, matching up to life insurance policies is what life insurance companies did. This was before the CMBS, the commercial mortgage-backed security industry, was created in the early 90s, which addressed the failure of the SNL industry that happened in that crisis period. So getting to the point on recourse, the SNLs and the banks typically were uh, recourse lenders. And to this day, banks, commercial banks, mostly remain being recourse lenders, but typically on construction financing. And when the property stabilizes in value, the banks now have matured to the point where they understand that recourse is not necessary on properties that are generating enough income to pay the debt service. So typically they reduce their recourse exposure on the property up down to zero if the property is performing at a certain level, certain debt service coverage as we call it and when you're lending. So the thought being where Ben's context is, the industry changed in the 90s such that recourse has become less important going forward, at least uh, for stabilized real estate. And that's where he wanted to aim in his investing. What he does talk about is when he does construction or development deals, he doesn't want any financing on those, on those where he's investing equity. So that's a bit of a divergence. He doesn't want the risk of, of borrowing money in that, in that realm. And in his platform, he's able to do that. That's what I kind of uh, had here for us to, to cover today, John. I, um, once again, I'm really excited uh, to be involved moving forward, and, and I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Uh, we will have uh, another postscript sec- segment for part two of our discussion with Ben. And uh, in, that, in that part of the interview, we get into a little more depth about how his company Fundrise operates. And we also talk a little bit about the markets and we go into the markets in some detail as I do with my other podcasts and his perspective, what he's looking at as far as investing going forward. And then we talk about his team, how he built it and his qualifications for for new employees. And then some of the statistics of his customer base, which is pretty incredible. And then some of his life priorities and uh, some of the some of his successes along the way, and some of the failures and struggles he's had, as we typically do in most of my episodes. So, thank you for listening today, and uh, I look forward to uh, uh, speaking to you down the road. Thanks very much.